Thank you so much to the chorus for the music this morning and to the band backing them up. I hear the, there's the, it's the buzz, right? Yeah. Do you want to switch over to platform, to podium mic? I'm going to be on handheld. Thanks so much. Look at that. John's already ahead of me. Um, the, uh, the music this morning is uh, an auction item. It was um, won at last year's auction and selected, and so we have quite a genre. And you can see that actually the chorus has um, dressed to fit the genre. So we have a couple of genuine varsity uh, letter jackets there uh, represented. Um, and I love to think about the fact, you know, you at this coming auction could bid on music if you, for instance, wanted the chorus to do all death metal one Sunday. We could totally make that happen, um, I'm sure. Um, it would be great. And I, I mentioned at 930, actually, we have a teen uh, who's now a young adult uh, who graduated from our Sunday school who's really into death metal and plays bass in, in a death metal band, right? Is he in a death? He used to be in a death metal. Doom. The, the band is Doom. So I think that would be awesome. I'm totally stoked for that. So keep that in mind when auction comes around next year. If you are a metalhead, um, <laughs> many years ago um, on Father's Day here at Wes, um, I gave a platform about the um, the sounds that babies make. I had a little babe in arms at the time. I think it was my older daughter um, was a baby and you know nursing still, a little tiny. And um, my mother is a developmental psychologist. And uh, so often tells me kind of tidbits about babies and baby development and child development. And um, so she was telling me at some point around that time that, um, you know, across sort of different cultures and language families, the sound uh, mama and nana is associated with mother words, the word for mother, for grandmother, etc. Um, and the sounds bubba and dada are frequently associated with the words for father. Um, again, many different um, cultures and across different language families. And, and she was explaining that one of the reasons for that is that um, bubba and dada are the sounds that a baby makes when they're playing, when they're engaging and playful. And mama and nana are the sounds that a baby makes when they're hungry. And... Uh, so as I mentioned, I had a nursing child at the time, and I remember thinking particularly poignantly on the fact that I was essentially the cafeteria. My husband got to, um, you know, play with the baby, got to have a great time, and there I was just pretty much the food source. And not only was that true at that time in my life, but it was like built into centuries and millennia of how we call parents, you know, <laughs> was a lot up against me. Um, my children now are five and nine, and both parents provide them with food, and they, in fact, get themselves food really quite competently. Um, I was late on dinner one night recently, and my older daughter um, said she was hungry, but I was, like, busy trying to do things and came in and found that she'd gone in the kitchen in the fridge, gotten herself cold pizza, and was feeding her sister and herself, so that was helpful. Um, but, um, but I still think about that idea, the, the idea of the mama and nana, the roles that we assign to women who parent and to men who parent, and the way that we imagine them to be linked into biology, um, 
and, and, and then reinforce them in our society in the way that we expect people to fulfill those roles. Um, I think about that, um, that reading from Evan at the beginning um, around fathering and, um, and, and how hard it is how so many of us um, who are women married to men, as I am myself, you know, fall into that trap of the babysitter list for your father and kind of imagining that along with mothering comes a certain particular kind of parenting uh, role that we fulfill. It's actually one of the times when I'm particularly grateful for all of the same-sex parents um, and single parents who um, are able to kind of queer parenting a little bit, right? Are able to inhabit their, their own parenting roles because they are not different sex people parenting together um, and, and offer that as a gift to those of us who are in different sex relationships parenting, um, that, that we can look at those relationships and see a different possibility for those um, for those roles for the way that we inhabit our own parenting. But still, we have this sort of image of the father as the fun parent and the mother as the, um, you know, the cafeteria, the feeding parent, the, the list parent, the rules parent. This is not, though, a platform specifically about fathering or even about parenting, despite its title. The title, I think, is something like the art of parenting um, and then parentheses, without losing your love of children. And um, I actually considered making it um, the art of parenting and then something slightly more violent, but I was afraid that it was going to not read right um, in print. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, parenting is hard. It's hard in many ways. Um, there are times when I feel my patience is just tested to the limit, um, when there's a temper tantrum in front of me, and I, and I really have to um, you know, kind of pull myself together. One of the ways that it is most hard, though, in my experience, is that it can be so boring. Uh, they don't tell you this about parenting when you take a baby home uh, for the first time. They don't say, you know, they, there's sort of all of this, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be hard, it's going to stretch you. Nobody says you're just going to be bored a lot of the time. It's tedious. There's, I find that, um, you know, children have to eat, it turns out, every single day. Were you aware of that? <laughs> every day. In fact, they request eating frequently multiple times a day. So that is a lot of food prep that you have to do. They need to go to sleep every day and for some reason are unable to go to sleep, particularly when they are most tired. So that requires you. They, um, they have to bathe. In our house, they do not bathe every day by any means, but they do have to bathe with some frequency over and over and over again on repeat. Parenting can be boring. But the reality is that it isn't just parenting that causes that kind of tedium. It's actually adulting in general. You know the term adulting? It's one of those words that millennials have turned into a verb, even though we know it wasn't really supposed to be. We're sorry. But um, adulting is the act of being an adult. And, uh, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of conversation out there about how hard adulting is. Actually, they make um, badges, uh, both little ones on Facebook, but also real actual badges. I know somebody who ordered a, a set of actual badges um, for completing adulting activities. I put my pants on this morning. 
adulting for the win. You get a badge. Like, good job. That is hard sometimes. Um, pants with a zipper, even harder. Like, not leggings. Wow. Uh, I went to work this morning, made it on time. Adulting badge. Fantastic. Well done. Over and over again, we find we have to do these things. Now, I want to note that sometimes adulting is more than just boring. Sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes it is harder for us than others. Trying to adult with physical or mental challenges, trying to adult in the midst of trauma or challenging life circumstances. Those are times when it actually is a big deal sometimes to get up and put your pants on in the morning when that's perhaps beyond where you can be. And I, I really honor those times. But a lot of the time, for many of us, adulting is hard not because it requires us to stretch ourselves emotionally and learn new skills and dig deep, but just because we have to keep doing it over and over and over again. You know, you've got to go to the meetings every single day. You have to write those inter-office memos all the time. You have to check your email, and you know when you you go through all your email and you've responded to everybody and you think you're done and then the problem is they write back to you and you have more email, it never goes away. This sort of boring part of adulting. I don't know, maybe all of you work in jobs where all of those things are intensely interesting and fun and every meeting you go to is just a barrel of laughs. But many of us instead are in jobs and in lives where you know there's annoying, boring tasks that we have to do. Um, this is the time of year I've been in, in clergy leadership for um, almost coming up on nine years now. And this is the time of year, May and June, every year when the ministers start to get really cranky. Um, we complain in our little online forums about how done we are, how grumpy we are. We don't have anything to say anymore on Sunday mornings. We're just out. Like, we, there's nothing interesting left. I actually went to a, um, a sermon once before I was a clergy person myself, um, and it was a June sermon. And the minister's sermon was um, a whole bunch of things that he had not gotten around to saying throughout the year which were unrelated to each other. And he presented it that way. I mean, he said, you know, I just I wanted to say these things. They didn't fit into any other sermons. And so it's June. Here you go. Here's something that's wise and important. And then unrelatedly, here's another thing. I totally relate. That's where we are by May and June. Here's just a bunch of random things I felt like saying. Didn't get to, but you should hear them. And sometimes that, you know, that tiredness in May and June for ministers is because we're planning for the next year, which is both exciting and exhausting too, or because there's anxiety in the congregation that we're managing and trying to deal with. But I will say that the number one, um, the number one complaint of ministers really any time of year over the nine years that I've been in conversations with other clergy, the number one challenge of being a minister is writing your newsletter column. Everything else, piece of cake, you know, tragic deaths, it's okay, you, you, you're there. But the damn newsletter column, every single month, um, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to manage. And, and so I think we cannot underestimate the experience, the challenge of boredom in life. I've heard it sometimes called being nibbled to death by ducks. You know, all of the little things that just drive you bonkers. 
I asked uh, someone I hadn't seen in a while recently how she was doing, and, and she responded that she was in the stage of life of happy boredom. And my husband said a couple of years ago, he's here, so hopefully he remembers this. I didn't really check on this. A couple of years ago, I remember him saying um, that we were now the age where, you know, nothing really new was ever going to happen to us again. (laughs) And I actually don't think that he meant it in a bad way. I think it was like, you know, we've sort of done all the things. You know, we got married, we had our kids, we're, you know, in stable jobs. And so, you know, it's just this nothing new is going to happen. I found it intensely depressing. I, um, I write in sometimes to my high school newsletter, you know, sort of what you've been doing. And, and I have found that in the past six or seven years, I have nothing new to say. My children are one year older. I am in the same house. You know, it's, um, it's a little bit boring, the stage of life of happy boredom. So what do we do with all of that? Like, how, how do we just find more fun in our lives? How do we find the time for fun and zest and joyfulness? I look at the picture here for our month of zest, which Carol Clayton took, this picture of a child, mouth open, in the middle of a laugh, and I wonder, how can I have more of that in my own life? For me, one of the things that keeps me from this sort of full-throated joyfulness and laughter is that I don't want to look stupid. It's embarrassing, actually, that my fear of embarrassment is something that keeps me from joy in my life, but it's true. I don't know if you remember the Zumba class that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you were here that Sunday. I was talking about this Saturday morning Zumba class that I go to, um, which is, for me, one of the glimpses of the beloved community. You know, you're sort of there dancing with this multiracial, multigenerational group, everybody having an amazing dancing time together. Well, true confessions, what I am usually doing during that Zumba class while the the instructor is dressed in neon, whooping it up, and the music is blasting, and everybody is told, you know, just have a great time, just let it go and have fun. We're all here to have fun. I am trying to do Zumba with the smallest possible movements of my body, lest I look bad if I really let it go. I'm trying so hard to get the steps right and my arms on. And, and, you know, you don't want to go all out because you might do it wrong all out. So if you just sort of do like a little half one, that then if you're wrong, you can get it down really quickly and you won't look stupid in front of all of the people in Zumba who really could care less. Of course, I'm sure they're all thinking the same thing. It's like a middle school dance. But there I am, unable to fully embody how much fun I should be having because I am worried about how I will look. I find this with dancing in general. I love to dance. When I'm dancing, I actually feel it's one of the times when I'm most fully embodied in sort of joyfulness and fun and zest. And I do it so infrequently, almost never, because I'm worried that I will look stupid while I do it. And so you'll see me, you know, I do my little like tiny like the lip bite, you know, um, little tiny dance. Because I'm worried that I'll look stupid, despite the fact that the people whom I think are coolest, the people I most might want to emulate, are actually the ones who are wild and silly and goofy, who don't care who's looking at them, who look semi-ridiculous when they're dancing, but are clearly having a great time. 
despite the fact that intellectually I know that, I find that my physical self just can't quite let it go. I think it's related in some ways, that sort of embodiment of zest and fun is related in some ways to the kind of parenting roles um, that we were talking about earlier. Often, at least in my family, the father's role is more embodied. It's sort of the, you know, tossing the child in the air and wrestling them down to the ground while I'm the one on the sidelines saying, careful, you know, don't, don't, don't toss her too high. You might drop her. He's really not going to drop her, right? You know, and they're bouncy. It's okay. Um, <laughs> or the classic, don't rile her up before bedtime. I can't have her riled up before bedtime. We've got to get her to sleep. And I think as I stand on the sidelines sometimes, yes, it's bedtime, and it's true, you don't necessarily want them riled up just before they sleep. But on the other hand, this is also life time, you know? This is life. And sometimes being thrown in the air, gleeful and joyful, is precisely what you need. Sometimes my lack of zest or joyfulness is not nearly so angst-filled, though, not nearly so complicated. It's simply about my schedule, my time. Perhaps you experience this, too. You're trying to get the camp forms in. You've got to make sure you do a dental cleaning every six months. You have to get to work on time. They do like that or make it to your volunteer activity on time. And you find that you simply haven't scheduled fun into your life. When I have a spare minute, I either try to catch up on things at home or I do what, what people call self-care, you know. I read a book with a glass, a mug of tea or I get a pedicure and those things are lovely and center me, but they're not exactly zestful. They're not exactly fun and joyful. The fun and joyful part is hard to create organically. I don't realize often that I'm missing it until I have the moment of a big belly laugh and I think, oh, I should be doing that more often. I should be making space and time for that to happen, allowing the possibility of that. I was thinking about how all of this relates to ethical culture why we're talking about zest and fun and joyfulness here in this community. Ethical culture is not often accused of being the most zestful of religious and philosophical movements. We tend to be a little bit in our head, pretty intellectual. And of course, the founder of ethical culture, Felix Adler, who lived during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was not the epitome himself of zestfulness. You may um, recall his face if you've seen it somewhere. You can look it up and find it online. He was sort of a, you know, slim uh, white man, Jewish background, little tiny goatee. And all of the pictures I've seen of him, he looks like this. You know, just thinking seriously about the moral right and ever moving toward the moral right this is, after all, a guy who in his late teens um, started a chastity club, um, <laughs> which isn't that zesty, honestly, when you come down to it. It's actually, th there was a nice reason, and I, I will tell you the story. So at that time, it was a time of real um, uh, 
complete gender imbalance and um, double standards for men and women in middle and upper middle class society in America. Uh, women were expected, of course, to save themselves for marriage, um, whereas men, it was completely tolerated and acceptable for upper middle class men to be with as many kind of lower class women as they liked. There wasn't a double standard. There was a double standard there. And he thought that that was unfair and so created um, a club with several of his friends um, uh, that was a chastity club that, that as men, they were also saving themselves until marriage. And so there's actually something rather beautiful in that. They ended up pooling resources as well and um, they fostered several children whom they did not raise. They, they employed um, a woman to raise them um, as part of their kind of connection to society. So there's something lovely about that, but it's not real zesty, you know? It's not real, woo, like having a party. Adler believed that, um, that religion came out of the experience of spiritual pain that all people um, have in the world. And he believed in three specific spiritual pains. Um, one of them was the experience of seeing suffering in the world that we cannot alleviate and the pain of that. And, and I, th I think that's true. You know, we see suffering either in our own lives or in the world at large, suffering that we cannot ultimately fix and experience the pain of that. It, it, it has a sorrow to it, a deep and true sorrow. And Adler felt that um, that, along with a couple of other spiritual pains, were the reason that people gather in community like ours, the reason that there's religion um, as a response to that particular human condition. And so I think there's then a real call for us in our society, in our congregation, to respond to that spiritual suffering with as much full-throatedness, as much zest and enjoyment, a, a lusty living of life as possible. So speaking of moments where zest and joy emerge organically, Friday night of this weekend, um, I was leading a camping trip for the Girl Scout troop, of which I am a co-leader. Um, we went up to a campground in Clarksburg, Maryland. Uh, it was 11 little girls. Um, we left with 11. We came back with 10. Um, but it's okay. One of them got sick in the middle of the night. She got driven home. Um, we didn't lose her. Uh, too many s'mores. Yeah. That would be too zesty. That's too zesty. So... Um, so it was um, 11 little girls, uh, nine year all eight and nine-year-olds, and um, me. And then, as it turned out, the other parents that could come were three fathers. No other mothers could come. So I titled the whole experience, Three Men and a Little Leader. That was me, a little leader. And, um, and as we went on this camping, did you get it, like the movie? Three Men and a Little Leader. Finally, thank you. Um, as we went on this camping trip, I really tried to be aware of how I was interacting with the girls and how these three fathers were interacting with the girls and whether there was a difference in how we were treating them in, in that time together. And, um, and for the most part, you know, there really wasn't. For the most part, we were, you know, we all needed them to, like, get their tent set up, and we all needed them to roast their little tofu hot dogs on sticks at Silver Spring, so half the, to half the hot dogs were tofu. Um, you know, and we all needed them to clean up. I gave them kind of a stern lecture about recycling, which the other one, the 
the other um, parents weren't there for. But, but for the most part, I, I found that we were all kind of interacting pretty similarly. And I thought, well, you know, maybe we're not so connected to those stereotypical roles. Well, on Saturday morning, we woke up and we, you know, had our breakfast and took down the tents and did some geocaching. And then as we had driven in the day before, the girls had seen a kangaroo bounce at the campground. Do any of you know what a kangaroo bounce is? So it's about, it was like the size of half this room. It's basically a giant bouncy pad, um, a little bit firmer than a moon bounce. And it's just one big one, just the whole half of the room. And then around the bouncy pad is sand so that if you fall off the bouncy pad, which is about six feet, you know, once you get to the middle, it's about six feet high. If you fall off, I think it's so you fall off into sand and you don't hurt yourself. There's this huge kangaroo bounce, and the girls had seen it when we drove in, and so, of course, they all wanted to go to it. Um, and, uh, <coughs> and so we said that we could do that as our final thing before we got in the car. So we drove over to the kangaroo bounce, and, you know, the girls ran up and shucked off their shoes, because you can't take your shoes on, and, and ran through the little sand border and up onto the kangaroo bounce and started jumping away, and um, a couple of the dads came and took their shoes off, and they started jumping on the kangaroo bounce. And I uh, had my camera and started taking pictures of them. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, God, this is great. It's so zesty. It's so joyful. I'm going to use this illustration in my platform. It's just wonderful to see them playing there. And, and then I thought, wait, what in the hell am I doing standing on the sidelines of the kangaroo bounce? And I thought about it. I thought, I, I don't think I will go up there. I don't, I don't really like sand. It's going to get on my socks and it's going to be on my toes. I don't like that. And I'll probably look stupid. I mean, let's be honest. It's hard to not look stupid when you're on a kangaroo bounce. So I'm going to look weird and I, I might hurt myself or bounce wrong. And then I thought, no, I got to get myself up there. The whole point of zest and joy and fun is that you grab the moments when you can. You grab them as they present themselves to you. And here I am standing on the sidelines of a kangaroo bounce. And I'm going to do it, by golly. So I took my shoes off and I put my phone down. And you have to kind of like start at the back and run to it so that you can get up these like weird, slippery, bouncy sides. And it's quite an experience. I really do recommend the kangaroo bounce to you, especially if you're bouncing with people who are bigger than you are because they really get it going. And you can do the double bounce where you've bounced and then you get more air and suddenly find yourself, you know, sort of feet up in the, um, in the sky. And so I wanted to leave you with that image, but I really wanted to get it across to you. And so I, um, I give you the kangaroo bounce at Little Bennett Campground. Is it running? I maybe don't, I don't give you the little, here we go. <laughs> it's like that. Well, we may, here we go. We may not have the image. You'll have to go onto my Facebook page. I will post it there. Um, but what I wanna say is that, I see it on the laptop is that um, as much as possible to look for the times in your life when you could be bouncing in the air and you are instead on the sidelines and to grab the moment and bounce.